Welcome to the Banner of Truth broadcast. This program is brought to you by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. Your host is Pastor Jack Schumann, pastor of the Emmanuel Free Reformed Church of Abbotsford, British Columbia. And now, here is Pastor Jack Schumann. Due to illness, I had to interrupt our series of sermons on the book of Ezra for the past two weeks, but I'm thankful to be able to resume this series today. And to that end, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Ezra, chapter 9, as we read the verses 1 through 4. And these words also form our text. Let us hear the word of God. When these things were done, the leaders came to me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands, with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with the peoples of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. So when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe, and plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard, and sat down astonished. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel assembled to me, because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive. And I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. This ends the reading of the Holy Word of God. May he bless the reading and preaching of it to our hearts. Dear friends, it sometimes happens that just when things are going well, everything seems to come crashing down around you. And that was certainly the case for Ezra. God had blessed Ezra tremendously. He had successfully led some 5,000 of his countrymen, men, women, and children, together with all of their possessions and livestock, to the land of Judah, a distance of some 900 miles, and that in the heat of the summer, with a constant threat of armed bandits attacking them along the way. What is more, he had successfully delivered every ounce of gold and silver and every gold and silver vessel that had been given by the king and his princes and the Jews in Babylon for the work of the temple. Not an ounce went missing. And in thankful acknowledgement of all of this, Ezra and the people assembled in the newly reconstructed temple in Jerusalem to worship and to offer sacrifices to God. But about four months after these events took place, Ezra was informed of something that shook him to the core. He was told that the people of Judah had sinned by intermarrying with the people of the land. So just when everything was going so well, it all came crashing down around him. We read about this in the scripture passes that we read earlier, Ezra 9, the verses 1 through 4, and it's to these verses that we turn our attention with God's help today. Our theme is the sin of the exiles exposed. And we'll consider, first of all, the awful seriousness of this sin, 
And secondly, the striking response to this sin. The day started out so well. Ezra probably woke up that morning happy and eager to get back to the work to which the Lord had called him. But probably not many hours later, Ezra received some unexpected visitors. Who were these men? Well, they were the leaders of the people. There's something unusual about this. It was not often that the leaders of the people came to Ezra and asked him for a private meeting. Why had they come? What was so important that they required this special meeting? Well, Ezra tells us in verses 1 and 2. Apparently, the people of Judah, including the priests and the Levites, had intermarried with the women of the land. In fact, as we read in verse 2, the leaders and the rulers were leading the way in this. Probably not the leaders who had approached Ezra. Needless to say, this was expressly against the law of Moses. In both Exodus 34 and Deuteronomy 7, God expressly forbade the people from marrying heathen women. And that was not for racial reasons. The Bible nowhere forbids interracial marriage, so long as the other person is a believer. In fact, there are several examples of this in the Old Testament. Abraham married Hagar, who was an Egyptian. Moses married Zipporah, who was a Midianite. And later, a woman from Ethiopia. Salmon married Rahab, who was a Canaanite. And Boaz married Ruth, who was a Moabite. So if it was not for racial reasons, why then were the people of Israel forbidden to marry heathen women? Well, the answer is this, because God was concerned that if they married such women, they would eventually worship their heathen gods. What is more, by marrying heathen women, they would, as Ezra writes in verse 2, pollute the holy seed. Now again, this is not racism. Since the Jews were in covenant with God, their seed or their children were also in covenant with God. That's why they were called the holy seed. Holy as in set apart or, or sanctified, not without sin. But God had not entered into covenant with the heathen nations in the land of Canaan. And therefore their offspring would be mixed or mingled with the people of the land. Now, if that is so, why did the people do this? Our text chapter doesn't tell us in so many words, but there are several possible reasons. The first one may be economic. By marrying heathen women, the people could receive favored trading status with the surrounding nations. Another reason might be social. By marrying these women, one could rise in your social standing depending on the status of the family. And a third reason might be political. By marrying heathen women, the rulers of the people especially could form political alliances and thus increase their power and prestige. Maybe too, these men who married these women just fell in love with them. What is more, they probably figured that everything would work out. Whatever the case, they married these heathen women. 
Now, why Ezra did not know about this and why he did not do anything about it, we don't know either. However, in chapter 8, verse 36, we read that Ezra and the leaders of the people delivered the king's orders to the king's satraps and the governors in the region beyond the river. The reference here is to the letter that King Artaxerxes wrote granting special powers and privileges to Ezra and the Jewish people. We have a copy of that letter back in chapter 7, the verses 12 to 26. And so it's possible that the reason why Ezra was not aware of what was going on and that he did not do anything about it was because he had been away for some time, meeting with the leaders of the surrounding nations and delivering to them the copies of Artaxerxes' letter. Nor do we know why the leaders who told Ezra about this did not do anything about it themselves. It's possible they had tried, but without success. It's also possible they simply did not know what to do about it. After all, the situation was complicated. How do you tell someone that he should not have married his wife? especially if they had been happily married for many years. Nor do we know why they brought this to Ezra's attention in the first place. They certainly weren't gossiping. These men were genuinely concerned. It's possible they were convicted under Ezra's preaching and teaching. But one thing we do know, they recognized that that this was a serious problem. And because of that, something had to be done about it. And so they brought this matter to Ezra's attention, and for good reason. After all, Ezra was a teacher of the law, and as such, he could speak about this matter with great authority. What is more, he was a respected leader of the people. The people looked up to him. They respected him. And so if anyone could persuade them of the sinfulness of their actions, it was Ezra. Now, what can we learn from all of this? Well, we learn, first of all, that it is wrong for believers to marry someone who is not a believer. That was true not just for the Jews in the Old Testament. It is true for believers still today. The New Testament also commands believers not to intermarry with those who do not have faith in Jesus Christ. This is expressed most clearly, perhaps, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, the verses 14 to 18. And there the Apostle Paul writes, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Now, Paul here, of course, is addressing the principle of separation from the world. But what he says applies also to marriage partners. And the point is, believers may not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Why not? For the same reason that God forbade this in the Old Testament. Because slowly but surely, they will draw you away from the faith. Maybe not completely. I know of couples, and I'm sure you do too, who are unequally yoked but who still go to church. They rarely go twice, 
Sometimes, if there's a family gathering or they're on vacation, sometimes they don't go at all. Nor is there a vibrant spiritual life in their home, and that's especially the case when the unbelieving spouse is a man. Also, often in such marriages, there's conflict about how to raise the children and how to observe the Lord's Day and what the children may and may not watch on television and on the Internet. Sadly, most people do not realize this until it's too late, leading to a lifetime of regret and heartache. So why does this happen? If the scriptures are so clear on this, why is it that some still marry unbelievers? The answer is this. Often it's because they choose to be guided by their feelings rather than the word of God. And that's a growing problem in our society today. We live in a day and an age when more and more people are guided by their feelings. And that stands to reason. If you don't believe that God exists and you don't believe that the word of God has any authority, which is the case for most people today, well, what else is there? All you have left is you. What makes something right or wrong is what you think or feel is right or wrong. You become the ultimate arbiter of morality. And sadly, even some Christians are influenced by this way of thinking. It's deeply disturbing. How many professing Christians make bad choices in life regardless of what the scriptures teach, including whom they should choose as a life partner? To be sure, sometimes by the grace of God, unequal marriages work out and the unbelieving partner even becomes a believer. And I know cases like that too, but that doesn't happen very often. In fact, most of the time it doesn't, and therefore we should avoid it at all costs. Secondly, we learn here that when we or others sin, we need to do something about it. And isn't that precisely what these leaders did? They realized that what some were doing was wrong. And so what did they do about it? Well, they didn't sweep it under the rug. They didn't look the other way. They decided to do something about it. They came to Ezra. And they asked him for guidance. It's a beautiful example for all of us. We need to do the same. When you see a brother or sister living in sin, don't ignore it. Deal with it. And Jesus tells us how in Matthew 18. Jesus says, if you you know that your brother has sinned, that you're to speak to him personally about it. If he doesn't listen to you, then you're to take someone else with you. And if he still doesn't listen to you, Then you are to tell it to the church, meaning to the office bearers of the church. And if he doesn't listen to them, then he is to be treated as a publican and a tax collector. So the word of God is clear. But how often do we fail to do this? More often than not, when we know that a brother or sister has sinned, we say nothing about it. Or we pretend that we don't know. Usually because we don't want to jeopardize our relationship with that person. But dear friends, this is wrong. Nor does it show love to our neighbor. If we truly love our neighbor, we will do anything we can to rescue them from sin, especially if they're a brother or sister in Christ. Thirdly, we learn here that compromise with the world is a very serious matter. And essentially that was the issue here, wasn't it? The issue was not only that the people of Judah were marrying heathen wives. 
The issue was they were compromising with the world. They were blending in with the world rather than living up to their calling, which was to be separate from the world. (coughs) This has always been a problem in the church, and it still is today. Church today has compromised with the world in so many areas. We've compromised with the world when it comes to dress. Fashion today, especially for young women and even girls, is becoming increasingly more immodest. The rule of thumb in the fashion industry when it comes to young women seems to be the more it reveals the female body, the better. And this way of thinking has crept into the church as well. What only a few years ago would have been considered scandalous is now considered normal. And if you say anything about it or raise a question about it, you're looked at like you're some sort of a strange person. We've also compromised with the world when it comes to entertainment. When I grew up, going to a movie theater was considered sinful. Because by going there, you were directly supporting an industry that is worldly and anti-God. But now it seems everyone goes to movie theaters, even Christians. I'm also increasingly concerned about what movies and TV shows and YouTube videos people watch, what books and magazines they read and what internet sites they visit. We're spending far too much time looking to the world to entertain us. We've compromised with the world also when it comes to our priorities. If you ask most professing Christians today what was their chief goal in life, I dare say most would say it's to get ahead. It's to make money. It's to be able to afford a nice property in the country and go on exotic vacations. But you know how the Puritans answered that question? It's contained in the first question and answer of the Westminster Catechism. The chief end of man, listen to this is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Now, how many Christians today would say that? I fear not many. We've also allowed the world to influence our thinking about many of the issues of the day. Climate change and indigenous rights and homosexuality and transgenderism and feminism and a host of other issues. And I'm not saying that the church doesn't have to keep up with the times. It does, and it must. Nor am I saying that we need to live like the Amish, or that we should all go and live in a monastery. Jesus taught us to be in the world as salt and light, while not of the world. He also prayed in his high priestly prayer in John 17 that the Father would not take his followers out of the world, but that he should keep them from the evil one. But we must be careful that we do not hold the world up as our standard, beloved. Let us never let the world tell us what to wear, what to watch, or how we should worship. Let us never let the world be our guide in anything. Let us rather be guided by the word of God alone. The leaders therefore informed Ezra of a shocking sin. Now how did Ezra respond to this? That brings us to our second point. Upon hearing the report of the leaders, Ezra was shocked. We read in verse 3, So when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe and plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard 
and sat down astonished. You'll notice that Ezra does several things here. First of all, he tears his garment and his robe. In Ezra's day, men wore a long flowing garment and a robe or cloak over the garment. And Ezra, we're told, tore both of them, which in those days was a sign of great and deep distress. He also, it says here, plucked out some of the hair from his head and beard. That too was a sign of great distress. Although it was unusual, as men did not normally pluck the hair from their heads and beards, not even when in great distress. Significantly, when Nehemiah was later confronted with the same sin, he pulled out not his own hair, but the hair of those who were guilty of this sin. We read of that in Nehemiah 13, verse 25. Nehemiah pulled the hair of the offenders out of great indignation, but Ezra pulled his own hair out of great sorrow. Thirdly, we read here that he sat down astonished. The Hebrew word here means to be appalled, stupefied, dumbfounded. It's like Ezra couldn't believe his ears. He was speechless. He literally did not know what to say. In fact, we read in verse 4 that he sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. That would be about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And nor was he alone in this. In verse 4 we read, Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive. Reference here is made to those who trembled at the words of the God of Israel. These were the pious ones among the Jews. They are said to tremble at the word of God, which is simply another way of saying they took the commandments of God very, very seriously. Same expression, incidentally, is used in Isaiah 66, verse 2, where the Lord says, But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, and who trembles at my word. What a beautiful description of every true believer. Every true believer is one who trembles at the word of God. And so we see that here as well. These people who heard about what was going on, they also were shocked. And so seeing Ezra sitting, presumably in the temple courts, they gathered around him and they sat with him, hour after hour, equally shocked and astonished. Now some might say that Ezra's reaction was a bit dramatic, even over the top. But for Ezra, the practice of marrying heathen wives was no small matter. You see, the entire history of redemption hung in the balance here. If these marriages were allowed to continue unchecked, the Jews would eventually become absorbed by the surrounding nations. And that would mean that God's purposes would be frustrated. Even more seriously, the Messiah might never come into the world. What is more, by marrying heathen wives, these men broke faith with their covenant God. God had called them to be holy and separate. And instead, they sought to erase all distinctions between themselves and their heathen neighbors, all for selfish gain. 
Well, there's even more. This was precisely the reason why the Jews were sold into captivity in the first place. Ezra must have wondered, had these people not learned from their mistakes? Would history repeat itself all over again? Would God again come in wrath against them just when they had rebuilt the temple, just when they had been given the opportunity to start fresh? Oh, Ezra didn't know, but he was concerned. And that's why he responded the way he did. That we learn here that we should mourn deeply over sin. Not only over our own sins, but also the sins of others, especially of our brothers and sisters in the church. And I wonder if we do that enough. When was the last time you mourned over the sin of someone else? A child, a parent, a family member, a fellow church member. Most of the time when we hear of sins in others, we get angry or upset or we feel disgust. And there may be good reasons for that, but do we also mourn? Have we ever said with Jeremiah in Jeremiah 3 verse 25, we lie down in our shame and our reproach covers us. For we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers, from our youth even to this day, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. And how have we responded to our own sins? Do we mourn over them? Can we identify with Peter, who after he denied the Lord three times, went out and wept bitterly? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus promises a blessing on those who mourn. And who are these people? What are they mourning about? They're mourning about their sins and the sins of others. Mourning over sin is a mark, a characteristic of a true believer in Jesus Christ. And I ask you today, is this also a mark of you? Do you mourn over your sins and the sins of others? There seems to be so little mourning over sin today. It's because we no longer regard sin as very serious. Sin is no big deal, we say. Everybody sins. Besides, didn't Christ die on the cross for our sins? So why should we mourn over them? But this shows how little we understand about what sin is. Sin is not a minor matter. Sin is not something to be taken lightly. It is an act of cosmic treason against a good doing and a gracious and a loving God. And as such, even the smallest sin deserves God's eternal wrath and condemnation. Ezra and the people who sat with him understood this, and that's why they sat astonished. It's because they understood the seriousness of sin. Do you Here, too, Ezra points us to the Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't he? Ezra mourned. That's all he could do. But Christ did more than mourn. He actually paid the penalty for the sins of his people. And he did that by dying on the cross. And now sinners, whoever they are and whatever they have done, may come to him. Through faith in him, they may receive the pardon of all of their sins and the gift of everlasting life. Oh, have you ever looked to this Savior? He is willing and able to receive you. Believe on him and you shall be saved. Your mourning will be turned into dancing and you shall live and praise his name to all eternity. Amen.
We always appreciate hearing from our listeners. If you were blessed by or have a comment on the message you've heard today, we'd very much appreciate hearing from you. Our mailing address is Banner of Truth, 3386 Mount Lehman Road. Lehman is spelled L-E-H-M-A-N, Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X2M9. If you would like to listen to the message you've just heard again, or you would like more information about our program, including how to contact us and how to listen to other messages on this program, please visit our website at banneroftruthradio.com. Support for this program is provided by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. For more information about our churches, including where you can find a church nearest you, please visit our denominational website at www. Dot frcna dot org. Thank you for listening, and now until next week, may the Lord be with you all.